I haven't even started yet. All right, well, turn in your Bibles with me again, if you would, please, to Galatians chapter 6. And uh, we're, we're uh, getting close to the end of this book, but as we do, uh, Paul's bringing it uh, closer and closer to home. Uh, remember, we've, we've gra- been, been given over and over again the truth that salvation, a relationship with God, is given to us not by what we have done, but as a free gift to those who believe, those who would put their trust in Jesus to provide what they need, to have the punishment for their sins paid for, to be given the free gift of eternal life. And we spent a good bit of this book talking about that, and that we are not under the law. God gave his, his law to the Jewish people in order to turn them to the Messiah, to provide a standard of of righteousness by which they would see their need for a savior because they would understand they they couldn't accomplish righteousness on their own. They couldn't keep the law. But it's by a gift from Jesus who paid the price, who provided eternal life. But then we came around to that question then, well then how are we to live if we're not living under the law? We can't can't go just and see see what the law tells us to do. Uh, But it's something better. It's something better. He calls on believers to live not by the law, but to walk by the Spirit. To keep in step with the Spirit, as we saw at the end of chapter 5. To, just to follow closely behind the one who is our guide. In his word, learning what is good and right from it, but not living as under a law, but as in a relationship with the lawgiver in a relationship with the one who, who grows within our hearts his characteristics that can be ours. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those things which he says, against these there is no law. So if you're walking by the Spirit, if the Spirit is growing these things up in your heart, and you're doing, you're acting on those things, there's not a law against the things you're doing. Right? So you just keep walking according to who he is and what he has shown us is good. He used the law to show us what is good and what, is, what is, is evil. But that's not what we're to live by. We're to live by a relationship with him and what he is like and what pleases him and what he's, he's accomplishing to join him in that. And so now as we, we've, we've learned about walking by the Spirit, we've learned the, the, the deeds of the flesh that we want to have out of our lives, no longer to be a part of who we are, those divisive and destructive things that we used to do, or we're supposed to have used to have done, right? Because we're, we're new people now. We want those things out of our lives. We want to see the results of walking by the Spirit and being fed by His Word. Paul doesn't leave us with generalities. As we head into chapter 6, he's going to give us some specific ways that the fruit of the Spirit should show up in our lives. It's not exhaustive. None of this is exhaustive. But he gives us a great start. If we can run with the start he gives us, we're in great shape. And so remember, he he finished off chapter 5 on the the negative side. 
Verse 26, he says, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. And that's our tendency when we live by the law, right? We're we're judging each other based on what we see in the law. He says, no, don't, don't be doing that. Don't be envious of someone else because of what they have. That's a deed of the flesh. Don't be fighting and bickering with each other, but in fact, walk according to the Spirit. And as he he heads now into these first verses of chapter 6, here are some practical ways to be walking by the Spirit and seeing the fruit of the Spirit grow individually, but also together as a body. So follow along with me as I read the the first six verses of Galatians 6. It says, Brethren, even if one is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one, in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you, too, will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work. And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. And Paul hits us right where we live, the very first verse, doesn't he? The kind of stuff you're all eager to do, right? If anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore him. When you see somebody caught in sin... You're like, oh, yes, let's go do that. In a sense, I hope not. You shouldn't get all excited about correcting people. It should be something serious. It should be a sad thing in a sense that someone is in need of that. But if if we're walking by the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is growing up within us, it provides us with all that we need, even for those difficult situations that we might not want to be involved in. But let's, first of all, let's, let's look at who we're talking about. Uh, if anyone, and, it talks, and, and it's a very inclusive word. It's not, um, your translation might say any man, but it means man in the generic sense. If any human being <laughs> in your midst is overtaken or overcome or caught in any trespass, now, it's possible when it says caught in a trespass, it could be that you discovered it. The idea of, you know, you open the door and, oh, that's what you're doing? But it's actually more likely that what he's talking about here is, is the, kind of the word that the King James uses, overtaken in a sin. In other words, the idea, it's talking about someone who hasn't been on the alert related to sin. We live in a sinful world. There are opportunities to fall into sin all around us. And when we don't, as the scripture tells us again and again, be on the alert. Be on your guard. Be watching. If we aren't doing that as we walk by the Spirit, it's easy to end up in sin, even patterns of sin. When we didn't, we we weren't out looking for sin, but it seems like, oh, here we are. I've developed this pattern of sinful acts How did I end up here? That's somebody who's in need of rescue, right? That's someone who's in need of help. 
And the deeds of the flesh are easy, to, especially the ones that we were prone to, are easy to slip back into again. Not only that, you know, the devil loves to encourage what our flesh wants to do, right? First uh, Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, they're one of those be alert passages. So turn with me there, if you would, First Peter 5. Verses 8 and 9 says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And so if we... We let our guard down. If we're not always watching and saying, I'm, I'm living in a sinful world, I still have my flesh, right? I'm still human. I have in my brain and in my mind and in my history these patterns of sin. I can slide into them. So I need to be on the alert. Interestingly, though, also all, all of the, in verse, verse 9, or I'm sorry, verse, yeah, verse 9, all of the verbs and all of the pronouns in verse 9, are plural. So it's not just you specifically resist him firm in your faith, but you all resist him together firm in the faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in this world. Okay? So it's something we do together. We need to be on alert together for those sinful patterns and things that we can slide into. And so when we look and we see someone who has gotten involved in sin, it may feel to them like, I just got slipped. I don't know how I got here. Now, that doesn't mean that they aren't responsible. Sin for us is always a choice. And we are responsible. But it can often feel like, I don't know how I ended up in this pattern of sin. It just kind of, like I slid into it. So we need to be on alert for each other. We need to be there to care for each other in those situations. It's a body thing. It's a family thing. That's why Paul says, if anyone is caught in any trespass, then you need to go and restore them. Who, who's to do that? You who are spiritual. And you hear that and you say, oh, well, that's not me. That's those church leaders, right? That's the pastor. Were you paying attention to chapter 5? Who is supposed to, or who, who has life from the Spirit? Anyone who is a believer, right? So if you live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So if you are alive by the Spirit, if you are, as you were called to, to there, keeping in step, following the Spirit, it's talking about you who are spiritual. You have spiritual life. You can follow the Spirit day by day, step by step. So please don't put this off and say, oh, well, that's, that's the pastor, that's the elders. That's that other really godly person that I know of. No, it's talking about you. And, and it's a lot easier to say, I've got to be focused on the next step when you're walking into something that you feel maybe a little uncomfortable about. That's okay. It's not some special class of Christians, it's all believers, and if you're not walking by the Spirit, then start doing it again. Because it's those 
those that the Spirit is producing the, the necessary qualities in that are prepared and have, have the abilities that God has for us or that we need in order to accomplish something like this. And so what are we to do who are spiritual? Well, we're to, it says we're to restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So the goal is to restore. So when you see somebody in, in sin, it's not, oh, let's go jump on that guy. We'll punish him. He'll wish he hadn't done that, or she'll wish he had No, no, no. no, no the, the idea is to restore. The goal is to bring them back to strength and usefulness. Uh, this word is used in other places in the Bible for setting a broken bone, or at least in the Greek. I'm not sure if it was actually in the Bible, but it's used in, 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 the, in, in, in uh, Greek uh, writings for restore, or setting a, a broken bone. So how do you do that? Oh, you do it pretty carefully, right? Okay. But it, the idea is to get the arm or the leg or whatever back to being whole and being useful again. That's our goal when we see someone caught in a sin is to bring them back to strength, back to usefulness, bring them back to where they ought to be. Another place that it's used is for mending torn nets. And again, you want to get that net back to being strong and back to being useful again. And so that's our goal when we see someone caught in sin, not to bring punishment, not to ostracize them, but to bring them back to strength. And we're not going to get into the whole Matthew 18 and all that, but that's the goal of that as well, right? Is to gain your brother. And so when, when, when someone is in sin, we want them to get back to walking by the Spirit, get them back to fully functioning and, and showing the fruit of the Spirit and serving others. We're supposed to do it in a certain way. It says here, in a spirit of gentleness. So when we walk by the Spirit, it produces a kind of spirit within us, right? And of course, gentleness is one of the fruit, of the, or is part of the fruit of the Spirit. So remember, it has to be done in a, in a way that is treating someone with a careful touch, right? Uh, having great power, because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, having great power, but directing it with sensitivity and control for the sake of that person. Because when you're confronted with your sin, it's hard, isn't it? Even having other people see you in your sin can make you be tempted to be pr proud, make you tempted to be defensive, right? Say, oh, well, they don't know. give reasons, give excuses. And a gentle approach is what is needed to be effective in dealing with someone who's in sin. Now, sometimes it has to be very firm gentleness, right? Depends on the person and how, how uh, persistent they are in their sin. But a gentle restoration recognizes that that person may be putting on a show of strength because they feel weak and vulnerable. Here I am in my, my sin. I'm embarrassed by it. I don't like being seen in it. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get defensive. I'm going to put up a show of strength. That's the time when a gentle answer turns away wrath. That's the time when firm but gentle touch is needed. You in yourself could be harsh and crush someone, right? 
I mean, we have the power of the Holy Spirit. Infinite power working through us. But we don't want to misdirect that and hurt someone. We want to handle them gently. With spirit-directed precision. With deftness. And that we can receive the wisdom for that from the Holy Spirit. And, and this whole idea of, of gently restoring, you stop and think about the fact that given that it's the Spirit who gives us gentleness, don't the other fruit, parts of the fruit of the Spirit go right along with it? Right? He's going to deal gently, but, but gentleness flows from love, right? We, we, we treat the person gently because we want what is ultimately best for them. That's what love is. And so we aren't harsh. We, we don't just give, you know, random, harsh things on people who are sinning. But out of love, we treat them gently. We treat them gently, but, and, and that restoration can be done in joy, because the fruit of the Spirit is joy, right? We can be joyful even while grieving over their sin. We can be celebrating the work that God has begun to do in their life and the future rejoicing that he can bring over their sin. And so joy can even be in our hearts as we move into to helping someone who has been caught up in a pattern of sin. And it's possible to be gentle because of God's peace within us, right? Gentleness requires kind of a togetherness, right? And that's the idea of peace. It's when God binds us together with his peace. We're not scattered. And in this kind of situation, you, you can have multiple emotions going, Right? I'm going to talk to this person about how they're sinning. Oh, well, my tendency might be to be fearful. My tendency might be to, you know, to be protective of, of self, to be divisive, to just push them away. Oh, but because of his peace binding me together, helping me be able to focus, I can instead be gentle with this person by God's power, with his love, in his joy. Patience, of course, <laughs> if you're going to be restoring a person who's in sin. Sometimes it's a long process. It's not just, I'm going to sit down with them this one time and everything's going to be good, right? It may be a process of days, months, even years in restoration. Hopefully it's quicker. You know? But sometimes it takes time. We need to be long-suffering, as the King James puts it. There's going to be setbacks. There may be resistance. It requires the fruit of the Spirit, which is, one of the, is, which is patience. And you can go ahead and, and, and apply kindness, goodness, self-control. Those, those all are going to be evident, need to be evident, along with that gentleness. But the fruit of the Spirit isn't just this, this uh, nebulous thing out there. It's something that comes into real-life situations like helping a brother or a sister who's found themselves caught up in, a, in sin. Not only that, the, the Spirit allows us to do this humbly as well, because as verse 1 finishes up, it says, each of you looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. See, we're often very good at seeing the sins in others that we are prone to. We're often very good at seeing the sins in others that we commit, right? It's interesting how we can be blind to our own sins and see the very same sin in someone else. And so there, we need to have a, have a caution. 
You know, asking the Spirit for, for wisdom, for guidance, as we go to talk to someone, as we go to walk through a difficult situation with someone else, that we be careful that we don't become proud and slip into sin. That we don't see in, in the sin that they're committing something that then tempts us. And so we need to go humbly knowing, it's not me, but the Spirit is willing to work through me and use His Word and use the rest of the body to restore this one. Uh, as, as 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think you've got it together, be on your guard. Take heed. Watch out. You might be ready to fall. Or as, go to turn with me to Luke 6.41 and 42, that familiar passage where we're warned about how we, how we judge, how we look at others, right? Luke 6, 41 and 42, where he says, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself... Do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That's kind of the same thing that Paul is teaching. Same thing that, that, that Jesus had to teach here. Take a look at yourself. Examine yourself. See if there's something that maybe sin you've been overtaken in. Take that before the Lord. Let him deal with it. Get together with a brother or sister. Help, let them help you be restored. But not so then you can stop and say, well, I couldn't do anything. No, no. so now you can go to that person that you've noticed in sin and say, I want to help. Let me help you. Because God has helped me. I can point you in the right direction. I can walk along with you in it. And don't worry, I know what it was like to get that log out of my eye. I'll be gentle. I know how it feels. So we need to restore with that kind of humility, not like I'm coming to you from above you, but I'm a fellow sinner. But we can both be restored to strength and youthfulness. Usefulness. (laughs) Um, So then back to Galatians, verse 2. It really flows right out of that, related to the situation of, of helping the person you know, who, who is in sin. But it's, it's also, in a sense, now broader. Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. And so if we're walking by the Spirit, if the fruit of the Spirit is being manifested in our lives, we're going to want to come to the aid of those that we're around. Because the the truth of the matter in this life, you are not strong enough to bear the burdens that are going to come your way. I mean, although each believer has the all-powerful Holy Spirit dwelling within them, God has designed the Christian life to be lived by sharing that strength that you have from Him with others. It's not that God couldn't just have you have all, all that you need in yourself He's purposely spread it out, what you need for your difficulties among 
other believers that are in your life. He purposely requires cooperation between members of his body to carry the most difficult things in life. And those things are more than you can handle. People say, well, God won't give you more than you can handle. That's not true. He always gives you more than you can handle. But then he gives you the strength that you need to be able to deal with it. And he has distributed some, or maybe most, of that help that you need through other believers. And so the the phrases, and these are some of the hardest things to say, but the phrase, I need help, and the phrase, may I help you? Those should be two very, very common phrases among believers. We were not designed to work independent of one another. Although there's infinite power available, God doesn't give it all directly to you. He gives it through other believers as they walk with the Spirit, as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on are demonstrated in their lives because it's to his glory. It demonstrates what he is like when it's not you and God alone. Well, certainly, You only need God, right? But you know what? He has a plan and a design, and you can ignore that design if you want, but to your detriment and to the detriment of other believers in your life. And so bear one another's burdens, right? Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Oh, wait a minute. I thought we weren't under the law. Well, here's the law of Christ. Turn back to what Jesus said before he went to the cross. John chapter 13, 34 and 35. John 13, 34 and 35. said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There's the law of Christ. And notice the the outcome. If we love one another, if we're bearing one another's burdens, people will know that we we belong to Jesus. If you're just out there, just me and God, and we're going to do it, I think they might miss who you belong to. Because Jesus said, I will build my church, my assembly. He didn't say, I will build my strong individuals out there by themselves. And so he designed us to not only be helpers, but to be helped by others. Have others bear our burdens because we are not strong enough in ourselves to bear those burdens alone. And he is designed for the strength we need to come through others. And when we decide to be independent... It's contradictory to walking by the Spirit. The Spirit will always direct you into a relationship with other believers. And when we live independently, it robs us of opportunities to learn to love like Christ does. Because he said, love one another, how? As I have loved you. Oh, well, how do you, how do you practice? How do you learn experientially what it means to love like Christ? Well, you have to be loving 
experientially other people around you. When we live independently, it robs us of the context in which we can display what the Spirit is doing and producing in our lives to God's glory. And so as we walk along, we need to have a good evaluation of how we're living and what we're doing, right? That's what verses 3 through 5 are about. He says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another, for each one will bear his own load. So this evaluation process, he starts off by saying, Do you think you are something when you are nothing? then you're self-deceiving. You are fooling yourself. You are living outside of common sense when you think you are something, when you are nothing. And that can prevent you from offering help to other people. If you think you are something, you might say, well, I'm above doing helping that person in that way. Or it can prevent you from receiving help from someone else. If you think, I am really something, well, I don't need anybody else's help. You know, things get a little, okay, I'll I'll pray to God and he'll take care of it. Oh, well, you think you are something different or above what you actually are. You need to humble yourself and do things the way God says, not the way you think you ought to do it. And believe me, I'm not saying that because I've figured that out. Will you help me? That's a hard, hard thing for me to say. You probably find that the same. You know, but we need to stop and do an evaluation. When, I, when I'm refusing to ask for help, am I saying I'm something more than I truly am? Am I trying to play, play God? Or will I submit myself to him and his way of getting through the times of burden? Walking by the Spirit eliminates that kind of thinking. Because it isn't love, it forfeits the joy of fellowship, of walking together. There's no peace in living that way that you don't experience patience in any ways. And just walk down through the fruit of the Spirit. doesn't fit thinking that you're more than you ought to be. You need a self-examination, he says in verse 4, beginning. He says, each one must examine his own work. And so that speaks of a process of looking at something to see if it is genuine, that word that's used there. It's like metals. They go and they, and they test them. Is this really gold? What percentage of it is pure gold? Okay? In the same way, we need to look at the deeds that come out of our lives. Is it real? Is it really from God? Or is it out of my selfishness that I do the things that I do? Even the good things. I need to have that examination done. And Paul's lists of the, the deeds of the Spirit and the fruit of the, or the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit are helpful for us to to do that examination of our own deeds. And even helpful things. Well, which the good thing I did, was that out of the flesh? Was that to impress somebody? Was that to to show somebody up? Or was it because God has has born love in my heart? And I want to care for others and so on. Now, we can have others help us with this examination. Paul kind kind of nails it down in the sense that you have to examine your own work, right? And we can have other people help us in that process, but the thing is, when it comes down to it, here's a place where we have to, us before God, say, what's going on in my heart? Reveal my heart by your spirit, according to your word, which pierces to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, 
judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Then he says, do that evaluation. As he continues on, he says in verse 4, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. It's kind of an odd thing to say, isn't it? Reason for boasting. Now, this can't mean an expression of pride in what we have done. In fact, if you get down to verse 14, that makes it very clear, because there, there Paul says, but it may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So just a few verses down, Paul's going to make it clear. He's you're not examining so you can be proud, so you can say, oh, look what I did. In fact, he said the only thing I'll boast about is what Christ has done. This examination is related to the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. If that's the case, then the things that are encouraging for us are the things that are being produced by the Spirit in our lives. So we can't take credit, right? The Spirit's producing them. But the point seems to be that we can look objectively, according to the Word of God, at our deeds, and when we see the fruit of the Spirit growing there, we can rejoice. That's the idea of that word, to boast. We can say, look it, God is even doing things in me. He's growing stuff in me. A sinner saved by grace. He's changing me. He's bringing about things in my life that are cause for rejoicing and for praising him and showing his greatness. That's the the concept of the idea of boasting there. So I see that for the Spirit. It's like, Yes, Jesus is doing his good work. In fact, Paul explained the, the proper uh, boasting in 1 Corinthians. If you turn over there to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 26 through 31. And he also gives us some reasons why this is not proud boasting. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. So I get you in the right category right away, right? (laughs) But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. So right off he says, you're foolish, you're weak. That's who God chooses, the foolish and the weak. And the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you who are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just it is written, let him who boasts, boast in God. Lord, which is a quote from the Old Testament, so it's not a new concept, right? You're boasting, you're rejoicing, not saying I'm something great, but I'm rejoicing in God and what he has been able to do and and accomplish in my life. Then that gives us the foundation then for verse 5 where it says, for each will bear his own load. And you're like, what? Didn't he just say bear one another's loads? Well, actually he said bear one another's burdens, right? Now he's saying, just bear what God, or carry what God has given you to carry. 
It's not a contradiction, but in fact a confirmation of it. A burden is an excessive weight on a person. A person's load is simply the expected part a person is called on to play. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, invites the tired and the burdened to come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Okay? Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So there's a sense in which he calls us to engage with him. But because he is there in us and with us, it's a light burden. It's a light load we bear. He says, so you, in your initiative, don't just wait for everybody else to carry everything for you. You engage. You be a part of the work together. Each one doing as God has called him to do. And so it's not a matter of, oh, everything's a burden for me, so everybody carry it for me. No, no, you engage, you trust God, you allow his fruit to be born in your life so that you are the one he's accomplishing things through, right? And as we do that together, as the the load gets heavier over here, we all kind of shift in and say, okay, the Lord's got this through us. The Lord's going to use us to help you walk through it, right? So bear your own load. It's it's a shared burden. That's the way yokes work, by the way. He said, my yoke is easy. But the kind of yoke he's talking about, it's not, you know, it's, it's one where you have two or more hooked together and you bear that load together. And in this case, Jesus is bearing it with us, right? Which brings us then finally to verse 6, where it says, the one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him, which... Seems a little bit like a change here, but I don't think it is. I think it's emphasizing, again, that common fellowship. The taught and the teacher here, it's talking about a relationship. It's not talking about uh, um, some sort of a scholastic situation. Now, God has given some people gifts and abilities for teaching. And those are gifts to the church. And so there's that situation. This morning, I stand up, and I, I teach, and you receive. Sunday school. But there's also situations in life when you're with other people and they teach you, don't they? Other believers, they speak things into your life and you learn and you're changed, right? But realize it's, it's not a one-way situation. Don't take the world's ideas of the professional, of the expert, and they're, they're here and they speak down into your life. That's not God's idea. God's the only one we look up to, right? And then he works through us together, okay? So you have, yeah, I, I'm taught by all of you all the time. I hope that from the things I say and the things I speak into your life, you are taught as well. But he says what's supposed to happen here is that the one who has taught the word is to share all good things with him who teaches him. And the word for share there is the word you might be familiar with in Greek, koinonia often translated fellowship, right? To share together or to share in common. Now, oftentimes this verse is used to say, well, make sure you pay the pastor, pay the preacher. That leaves out most of what this verse is about. That's, that's kind of a sorry explanation of this verse. 
The point is here that there's a relationship between one who teaches and one who receives that teaching. Life, he says, share what? All good things. Is money the only good thing? I hope not. For this is a sad, sad life that we live. No, it's, it's life together. There's life to be shared in a unity in Christ. So teaching is not just dumping knowledge. It's a sharing together of life. That's where the, the, one of the big differences between just being taught and being discipled. Difference between the fact that it's just one person responsible for, for training the other person. Because it's reciprocal. If you've ever spent time discipling someone where you were the discipler and they were the disciplee, guess what? You find, the, you find things turned around an awful lot. The discipler is learning a lot from the, one, from the disciplee. It's a sharing, it's a fellowship of life together. Share life, share your gifts from God. Share your talents, your experiences, your growth, your relaxation, your work, your play, your fun. Together. That's where real learning and growth and change happen. The diversity of gifts means that, that we all need each other in common relationship. The fruit of the Spirit needs to be manifested in the lives of every believer and impacts all the others. Again, that's, that's discipleship. And it happens in multiple directions from multiple people throughout the body. So you might see, as we walk through these verses, that, that the new life that is ours in Christ is, is a living and it's a growing life. It's a mutual life together. It's about following closely behind the Holy Spirit and how he is working in everyday, real situations in each other's lives and in the lives of those who are outside of Christ, right? They haven't come to know him yet, but the fruit of that the Spirit grows in our lives is meant to impact unbelievers as well as we love them and that we demonstrate the joy of Christ to them and they see his peace in us that we can share with them to some degree and, event, and even especially share them with them the gospel so that they can be full partakers with us. See, it's a life of seeing his power working as he is pleased to change us, to use us, and to empower us together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this life you've given us. Pray that you'd help us to grasp and understand it more and more each day. Uh, thank you that you, we can be confident you are producing fruit in those who are yours. So help us to have eyes to see it, both in ourselves, so we can rejoice in you, but also in others, so we can encourage them in that. And, and walk with them, and, and we can, can share those burdens together and rejoice that you have provided everything that we needed, and we can glory in that. Uh, pray you'd be with us as we go, as, we, as those who stay to share together in the meal, and others as we go out, uh, whatever things you have in store for us today, that we would uh, really see you at work and changing hearts and lives. In Jesus' name I pray.